people can do amazing things, walk on the moon, contain a nuclear meltdown. And what do they have in common? They're not in it alone. Creativity, talent, genius, it's all a team sport. We have seen what we thought was unseeable. It was a step in a direction that nobody had taken before. I'm Gabriella Cowperthwaite, host of Teamistry. It's an original podcast from Atlassian, all about the chemistry of teams. Check it out on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated, and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Ben Valsler, and with Hannah Critchlow. Hello, and this week, a poisonous problem for beer drinkers. How to use lasers to make 3D images of distant objects, and how Ice Age pottery reveals that we've always had a taste for fish. Plus, we will be heading to the cradle of mankind in South Africa to meet some of our earliest human ancestors. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at The Naked Scientist, you can email studio at thenakedscientists.com, you can tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can find us on Facebook. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. And joining Hannah and me for a look at what's been making science headlines this week are Laurie Winkless from the National Physical Laboratory. Hello, Laurie. Hi, guys. And we're also joined by Bibi Camposejo from Chemistry World magazine. Hello, Bibi. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Now, first up, Bibi, you have been looking out for beer drinkers. This is something very close to my heart, but it turns out we might have been getting more than we bargained for. Yes. Uh, this is unpublished research that was presented this week at the ACS uh, Spring Meeting. And for those who are not familiar with, with it, it's the American Chemical Society. They have two meetings a year and they're absolutely uh, huge. And this is one of the topics that caught uh, our attention because obviously, again, beer is a very interesting uh, <laughs> topic of conversation for, for most of us. It does seem to catch people's attention quite a lot, yes. It does, it does. So um, basically... There is an issue with, with the beer uh, making process in that uh, brewers might have been uh, unwittingly adding arsenic to, to beer. Arsenic is obviously a, a toxic chemical. We know that it builds up in our soil and so on. How is it making its way into beer? Okay, so it all started in 2008 when uh, a group of Italian researchers published a paper where they had been looking at the levels of arsenic, lead and cadmium in uh, 20 beers. Um, and what they found was that about 50% of them had uh, higher levels of uh, arsenic than were, you know, than, than the recommended levels of the World Health Organization for drinking water, which is about 10 micrograms per uh, liter. So they they discovered that they thought that the arsenic could potentially have made it into the beer. Uh, via contaminated water or because the arsenic had deposited on the grain uh, from air pollution or traffic sources. But they didn't make a clear connection there. So in 2013, uh, so a couple of a couple of days ago, uh, Mehmet Koelan of the Weyhen Stefan Research Center at the Technical University of Munich in, in Germany uh, said that he had actually investigated uh, the, the source of, of the arsenic and he traced it back to the material used to filter the sediment from from the beer. Now, when I think of, of filtering a drink, I think of using paper or perhaps a, a sort of plastic nylon mesh. What are they actually using and why does it contain arsenic? It is a compound called Kieselger, I think, I'm guessing that's the German word, uh, and it's diatomaceous earth, and it consists of fossilised remains of diatoms, which is a type of hard-shelled algae that lived millions of years ago, and it contains uh, varying amounts of, um, 
of arsenic. So depending on where it comes from, uh, it will have higher or, or lower levels. And, and that, that is where the source is. Is this arsenic present in all brands of beer? How many different types of beer did he a- analyse? <laughs> he actually, he was looking at German beers specifically and they, uh, they analysed hundreds of, of samples. Uh, and he, they found arsenic in practically all of them, uh, but only a few of them had uh, higher levels than uh, 10 micrograms per, per litre. Um, so going back to your question about is, is it present in all types of beer, if they use this compound for filtration, probably yes. Um, and it's also used in other filtration processes within the food and drinks industries, uh, for example, wine as well, or for honey or syrups. So, it's, uh, so you, if you want to have a, a crystal clear appearance uh, in, in beer or wines, you generally use this compound for, for the filtration process. So, um, yeah, it's something to, to think about. So just finally, is this sort of artisan beers? Are, are these beers using very traditional methods? And if we find the beers that are made in, in mass quantities, are they likely to be using different types of filtration? So we're probably safe with our supermarket beers, but it might be those special bottles that you find in little markets that are the problem. I'm not sure, actually. I think it's pretty common uh, in, in terms of the, the process that they, they use that. So I would guess that a large amount of, of, uh, of beers will have this, this, this problem. It's very easy to resolve, though, because uh, you can either use other filtration methods, uh, you can uh, use Kieselger that has lower levels of arsenic, or you can actually wash it before you use it as well, or treat, treat the material before you put it on your, on your, in, in your filter. So it's, it's got an easy solution. Uh, but I I wouldn't, you know, want people to, to worry. I think you're, you, you should be more worried about, you know, uh, intoxication with, uh, with alcohol <laughs> than, uh, than with arsenic. So. Well, thank you very much. Laurie, I think you've got a story for us about how lasers can be used to make 3D images. Yeah, I found this paper in this month's issue of an open access journal called Optics Express, and it reports on some work carried out by a group of Scottish universities uh, led by Gerald Buller from Harriet Watt. And what they've done is they've built an imaging system which is capable of producing high resolution depth profiles, so 3D images of everyday objects from a distance of almost a kilometre. Now, I know over the years we're a bit spoiled with Google Maps and satellite imaging of the Earth and makes you think, you know, a kilometre is nothing. But when you take a standard image, like with a normal camera, you're actually just producing a 2D map. So you're collecting all the photons and the detector helps you build up the image. But it doesn't give you any idea of how far away objects are or how deep a hole is, for example. It doesn't give you any 3D image, any 3D data. But if you shine a laser onto an object and collect the photons as normal, but also time how long the laser takes to reflect off the object and come back to you, you get a much better idea of the depth or the distance away you are. And this is called time of flight at TOF systems. And this is the basis of the Scottish imaging system. Don't most objects, rather than reflecting light back to you in a very easy-to-look-at, controlled way, don't most objects actually scatter light? So it's sent it out in all different directions, and that might affect how long things take to get back to us. Yeah, that's very true, actually. It does, indeed. Um, Light will always scatter. But what you can do with different imaging systems is you can choose wavelengths that you know that an object will reflect um, more preferentially. So in this case, they've used a a red and infrared wavelength, uh, about 1500 nanometer wavelength. And that's just a bit longer wavelength than visible light. And the, the, the detector that they've built is also tuned to detect that kind of wavelength and the scattered wavelengths around it. So you can kind of choose it a little bit to be a bit more specific as to what you're actually gathering. And what kind of applications could we use this new laser 3D image technology for? Well, the kind of cool thing about this is that it images objects that aren't reflective. If you think about shining a laser on a surface, it will bounce back to you perfectly if it's a reflective surface. But as Ben mentioned, normal surfaces aren't like that. So this system can actually measure images that normally don't reflect the light. So like clothing or 
rock faces or vegetation or, you know, trucks, anything like that. So they, these te- this tech has been used for a little while in kind of autonomous vehicles. So when a machine needs to have vision, uh, but over quite a short range. So what these guys, what they see it being useful for is to look at things like the health and volume of vegetation growth, or maybe even things like movement of rock faces. So you could assess any potential hazards. And the long range of this system allows you to think about those kind of applications. One of the obvious concerns with this is that it could be used, especially at that sort of resolution, to recognise people, in fact, to pick out individuals from a very long way away for espionage type things. Are they going to be able to use it to to recognise me from almost a mile away? Well, I think we're safe in knowing that they probably won't be able to tell the difference between you and me, Ben. So I think we're okay on that. <laughs> and that's based on the, the fact that the, the wavelength that they've chosen, this wavelength of light that they've chosen, uh, human skin isn't actually very good at reflecting at that wavelength. So when you see an image that they take with this scanner, you can see a person dressed up in uh, a hooded coat, for example, and you see the edges of the coat, you can see folds in the fabric. But where their face is, is like a dark weird ghostly image so you actually can't identify people with this so human skin can't be identified with this quick question for you laurie so going back to the point about uh human skin not reflecting the lasers does that mean that we we would absorb the lasers that light then and then is it dangerous we will a little bit. It's just an infrared kind of uh, wavelength. So it's actually completely safe to the eye. So that's a really good thing to think about. A lot of these laser systems that are laser imaging systems use wavelengths that would be very dangerous if they were to strike any of us near the eye. Uh, but this is actually very safe, eye-safe uh, uh, laser. But in terms, of it's, in terms of danger to you absorbing it, it might make you slightly warmer. But from a kilometre away, I don't think you'll have too much uh, thermal power on you. Thanks, Laurie. And uh, Ben, I believe that you've been delving into some dino development. That's right. A chance fossil discovery in Yunnan province in China has actually yielded one of the oldest and most interesting collections of fossilised dinosaur embryos yet. And these fossils, which include preserved organic matter and bits of eggshell, can actually help us to understand how these animals developed in the egg and their early life. Now, embryonic fossils are actually incredibly rare. The bones are very delicate and they're often destroyed before they can become fossils. And that, of course, then destroys the evidence that we would have of a dinosaur's embryonic development. This particular find, which is in the dark red beds of a known lower Jurassic formation, contains many hundreds of finds, all from the same species. So we call this a monotaxic find. It's one species in there. And these are a vital resource for researchers because even Even if you don't find one single complete animal, you've got a range of sizes and ages which can help you to piece together the life story of that species. Now, these fossils date from the early Jurassic period, so that's between 190 and 197 million years ago. And Robert Rice and colleagues, who reported in the journal Nature this week, have catalogued more than 200 bones and samples of fragmented eggshell. Detailed examination of the bones actually shows that the dinosaurs would have undergone a period of sustained rapid growth, certainly a lot faster than modern birds or other dinosaurs. And that also suggests that their incubation time, how long they stayed in the egg, would have been very short. Now, it looks like the way that the bones have grown, which have very strong muscle attachments and what we call an asymmetrical cross-section, so they're not just a a cylinder, shows that the developing dinos would have been very active within the egg, squirming and kicking and developing the muscles and the skeleton that they would need for the outside world. And this, combined with the evidence for rapid growth, fits very nicely with the evidence that we have from adult fossils of this particular type of dinosaur, Lufengosaurus, which is significantly larger than many other dinosaurs at the time. Now, the really enticing thing about this find is that they've used a special type of X-ray, known as a synchrotron, to examine the fossils for evidence of preserved organic matter. And they have found traces that appear to have been left behind by decaying proteins. And that, of course, could then shed some light on the amino acid sequence 
and that could tell us something about the genetics and the biochemistry of these giant lizards. But Hannah, speaking of preserved organic matter, you actually have some news about a tasty Ice Age treat for us. I have indeed, yes. So published this week in the journal Nature, scientists from the UK, the Netherlands, Sweden and Japan have been carrying out some really clever chemical analysis on a 15,000-year-old pot. And uh, they've been scraping away at this ancient pot and they managed to get some old food charred residues that they've then uh, analysed and found out that it, it happened to be fish. So 15,000 years ago, some late Pleistocene Joman period uh, prehistoric hunter-gatherers must have been getting clay from the ground, shaping it into a nice container pot-shaped uh, thing, and then um, going out, getting some fish from the riverbanks, and then cooking with it. So this wasn't traditionally thought to have happened until 10,000 years ago. So this has really, really shocked archaeologists and historians to find out that our ancestors, our ancient ancestors, were actually cooking and pottering 15,000 years ago. So are the pots themselves unique and interesting, or is it just the fact that we can now work out what they were being used for? Well, there's some pictures of the pots actually on the Naked Scientist website, and they are interesting, they're very pretty, but I think, yeah, the, the really key point to, to this finding is that the scientists have been able to scrape away and manage to get these these really old food residue bits from the pots and then analyse them using this technique called gas chromatography combustion isotope ratio mass spectrometry, which is a bit of a mouthful. It, it seems very appropriate that it's a bit of a mouthful as we're talking about food, but how did they know it was fish? Ah, so they looked at the carbon and the nitrogen isotope ratios and also looked at the lipid chemical composition using these clever techniques and uh, managed to, to identify freshwater and marine animals. So there's a, a signature, a fingerprint, as it were, that says th this is a, a marine food. And could they confirm that it was cooked? Or was it not just being used to store these things, maybe to sell elsewhere or to trade? No, they could confirm that it was cooked. So first of all, it was charred. And also they could have a look from, from this signature kind of um, mark from the molecules. You could tell that they had actually been cooked. Hopefully we can start using this technique for other artefacts as well to find out more about how our ancestors lived. Thank you very much, Hannah. And thank you also to Laurie Winkless and to Bibi Campasejo for joining us this week. You can find more information, including references to all of the papers that we've discussed, on our website at thenakedscientists.com slash news. This is The Naked Scientists with me, Hannah Critchlow, and Ben Valsler. This week has seen the first ever British Neuroscience Association Festival of Neuroscience at the Barbican in London. Hannah, we sent you along for the whole thing. What was it like? Oh, Ben, it was brilliant and it was also very, very busy. So there was a wonder street fair that was bursting with fun neuroscience hands-on activities that over 5,000 members of the public came along to. So I was there measuring people's brain electrical activity so they could see how their brainwaves changed when they listened to music like Limp Biscuit. And they also imagined their favourite day, or they looked at their brainwaves when they were trying to calculate some difficult maths problems. Well, I do hope that they were volunteers, especially if you were subjecting them to Limp Biscuit. But it wasn't just about the public exploring neuroscience, was it? There was actually a, a conference element. There was some real science presented there. Absolutely. So thousands of neuroscientists came along to listen to hundreds of talks that were covering all areas of neuroscience, and uh, scientists were there presenting their research hot from the labs. So one of the papers announced that the conference that I found particularly interesting was all about how free will is implemented in the brain. And Kate Lamble spoke to one of the authors, Professor Gabriel Kreiman from the Harvard Medical School, about the paper. So she started by asking how you nail down such a philosophical question in science. It's extremely difficult and we're only taking very, very preliminary steps. So the type of experiments that we have done follow on the steps of several other previous scientists who tried to reduce free will to very simple questions. Let's say I ask you to tap your finger. You can choose exactly when you do that. So whenever you feel the urge to do that, uh, you can tap a given key. So we're asking a very simple question, what, when, how neurons get activated to dictate or determine that particular action? How do you measure those neurons? Are you using a skull cap of electrodes or are you using a more invasive procedure? The traditional way to investigate this question has been through scalp electrodes. These are about two millimeter contacts that are put on the scalp. What we took advantage of is a rare opportunity to peek inside the brain 
in particular cases of patients that have epilepsy and therefore need to be implanted with electrodes, very thin microwires that can capture and listen to the activity of single neurons and very, very small ensembles of neurons. So if you're measuring these neurons as they make the decision whether to click the mouse or not, what are you finding? Are people very conscious of when they make the decisions they want to? Well, of course, eventually people are conscious about when they make that decision and their subjective report is what we take as the ground truth about what they're conscious of or not. But what we're finding is that neurons in particular parts of the frontal lobe, more specifically an area called the supplementary motor area and the pre-supplementary motor area, get activated and are making those decisions for the subject way in advance, way before subjects become conscious of that decision. So several hundred milliseconds and in some cases even seconds before people know that they are going to execute that action, the neurons are firing like crazy saying, now we're going to be orchestrating this action. You're saying it's happening way before, but we're talking hundreds of milliseconds. How long is hundreds of milliseconds in neural terms? This is sufficiently long that we can ascertain that neurons are making those decisions before people become aware of them. To some extent, all of our decisions, unless we believe in magic, have to be orchestrated by neurons. And the particular situation in which we could record and monitor the activity of some of these neurons helped us to tap into some of these populations and neurons that are making these decisions for the subject before subjects uh, actually realize what they're doing. So if our neurons are firing and making the decisions before we're conscious of them, how does that make implications for whether we have free will or not? The simplest interpretation is that Basic uh, physical laws dictate when neurons get activated, when they cross a given threshold. That, that's what ultimately leads to a decision. And after the fact, we believe that we are the owners of that decision. We create this illusion of free will, but there's nothing really free in free will. These are neurons that are activated and we can describe with equations what they're doing and when they're activated and so on. What's the next step in research? How do we build up to working towards a more complicated action rather than just clicking a finger? That's very difficult. So one step that may not sound extremely exciting is to actually ask subjects to choose which hand they want to use. So not just which finger or when, but they now have a little bit more freedom. Ultimately, we do not think that we can make predictions about what you're going to have for lunch tomorrow or who you're going to marry five years from now. So we're we're making very simple decisions over very, very small scales with our capability in terms of recordings. So to some extent, I'd like to come back to the discussion of determinism as well as chaotic systems. We cannot really predict very well when we flip a coin whether it's going to land on head or tails. But no one would claim that the, the coin actually wanted to land one way or the other. It's just a problem that's very sensitive to the initial decisions. So similarly, we don't envision anytime soon being able to make predictions on scales of hours or days that are accurate in any way. But that may simply be a problem with technology, how many neurons we can tap into external forces. Ultimately, what you're going to do five hours from now may very well depend on a lot of external factors, not just your own brain. But the main point we are trying to make here is that our illusion of free will may be nothing more and nothing less than ensembles of neurons and circuits firing together in specific patterns. It's quite intimidating as a person who thinks that they go around deciding what they do every day. How much does the, the fact that you're having to work on epilepsy patients and where you put the electrodes are based on clinical opinion, how much does that limit the next steps of the research that you can do? We're very limited in many ways. Uh, We're limited in which locations we can investigate. We're limited in terms of how many neurons we can record from. On the other hand, this is one of the only ways in which we can investigate the human brain at this level of resolution. Does it have any implications in treatment? If we can understand how people make decisions and at what point that they make decisions, can we intervene at any point? Yeah, that's a fascinating question, and we're only taking very preliminary steps in that direction. There's a couple of neurological conditions that involve severe disorders in volition. 
Parkinson is a case where people have a lot of difficulty initiating movement. There are many problems in addiction research where, again, these are basic decisions that people need to, to make. So there has been a handful of studies, one by the neurosurgeon that I worked with, Itzhak Fried, where they stimulated electrically this particular area, the pre-supplementary motor area. That is, they injected current into the brain, again, for clinical reasons in these patients. And people reported that they felt the urge to make a movement. So in principle, one can bias the activity of neurons and enhance people's abilities or people's intentions to make specific decisions. Professor Gabriel Kreiman from the Harvard Medical School, he was talking to Naked Scientist Kate Lamble. But would you be happy to give your free will to a bunch of neurons, or do you count your subconscious as simply an extension of who you are? Let us know. We'd like to hear your opinion. Email studio at thenakedscientists.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, or find us on Facebook. And later on in the show, we'll be sending Chris Smith into a cave in South Africa to discover the latest research into Australopithecus sediba, an early human ancestor from around two million years ago. But first, in Britain's rather wetter climes, other fossils are also giving us an insight into our ancient past. When a preserved woolly rhino skeleton was found in a Staffordshire quarry 11 years ago, it was described as the most significant fossil find of a large mammal in Britain for over 100 years. Planet Earth podcast presenter Sue Nelson went to meet Professor Danielle Shreve at the Royal Holloway University of London, who led the team that's been studying the find. The animal was dated by radiocarbon dating and it's produced a nice cluster of dates around 42,000 years ago, which puts it pretty much slap bang in the middle of the last ice age. It's an interesting period for us because it's a period of relatively elevated warmth with summer temperatures around 12 degrees centigrade. And critically, the development of a huge, very rich tundra environment that has no modern analogue today, but which would have suited the rhino and other species around at the time extremely well. This skeleton was found in a, in a quarry. We know it was cold. You say it's in the middle of the Ice Age. Obviously, it's got its woolly coat that's adapted for that sort of weather. But give me a picture of what it was like then. The rhino was found in sand and gravel deposits which were laid down by the River Tame, which is a tributary of the modern-day Trent. And we know that at the time when the rhino died, it was a very open, rather barren landscape, certainly treeless, lots of grasses and shrubs that the rhino would have been able to graze on. And in particular, the river would have been running as a braided, cold-climate river with many channels and very bare and also rather boggy ground adjacent to the main channels. It's probably as a part of that story that the rhino, in fact, um, met its doom because, like a lot of very large mammals, it's very easy for these animals to get mired. And we know that because of the excellent state of preservation of the rhino, it was buried as a virtually complete carcass and buried extremely rapidly by the sediments and then not uncovered for 40-odd thousand years later. And was it on its own? Was it solitary or did you have any other mammals in the same vicinity? We found remains of another, a minimum number of another four individuals of rhino at the site, also remains of woolly mammoth, of bison, wow. of horse and of wolf. That's a treasure trove, really, isn't it? It is. I mean, it was a very unusual to find such a complete find. You discovered this quite a while ago. What have you been studying then that's been able to give you this link between the fossil and effectively the climate at that time? We've been able to look at the sediments themselves to say something about how the river was depositing sands and gravels. And we were also able to collect different paleobiological proxies in this case for example pollen plant macrofossils so things like leaves and seeds bits of stem but also beetles and the remains of chironomids which are non-biting midges and in particular the beetles and chironomids can give us a very clear idea of vegetation but also of the temperature that was experienced at the time. So how did you work out then what the temperatures were? Using the beetles and the chironomids Today, these species that we encountered at the site have very, very narrow temperature tolerances. So by examining the range where these insect species occur today, we're able to say very clearly, to extrapolate back into the past, exactly what the temperature regime was like. Now for the summer, we're looking at summer temperatures of around 12 degrees centigrade. 
that's roughly three degrees cooler than at the present day. But the winter temperatures are much colder, so you're looking at temperatures between minus 16 and minus 22 degrees centigrade. So extremely savage winter conditions. Was this um, what you expected, or did it tell us anything new about what was going on in, in that particular area at that time? What we're starting to see with the middle part of the last ice age, between about 60 and 25,000 years ago, is that it's a time of very rapid climatic oscillation, shockingly rapid climatic change. And so what we're trying to do is, with the help of high-precision radiocarbon dating, is to put together a picture of how those climatic oscillations impact on the environment of Britain, impact on the mega herbivores, and of course impacted on early humans at the same time. So it's a very interesting time period, and the Whitemore Hay find goes a long way to contributing information. Remains of woolly rhinos themselves are not particularly unusual for the last cold stage, but they're often found in caves and they're often heavily gnawed by one of the major predators at the time, which was the spotted hyena. In this case, we have a superbly preserved, virtually complete front part of this skeleton that we're able to look at in great detail and also to compare with other woolly rhino material, not only from Britain, but also from the the adjacent continent. Professor Danielle Shreve at the Royal Holloway University of London. And you can find out more on our website, nakedscientists.com forward slash planet Earth. This is The Naked Scientists with Ben Valsler and me, Hannah Critchlow. If you'd like to get in touch with any questions or comments, then you can email studio at thenakedscientists.com, you can tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can find us on Facebook. Now, a few weeks ago, the Naked Scientists were taking part in the Rand Easter show in Johannesburg in South Africa. And while we were there, we leapt upon the opportunity to visit the Cradle of Mankind World Heritage Site, where paleoanthropologist Professor Lee Berger has uncovered some of the most significant fossils of human ancestors. Chris Smith has more. In 2008, the world of paleoanthropology took a giant leap forward with the discovery in South Africa of a new species of early hominid. University of Witwatersrand scientist Lee Berger and his son Matthew had been out mapping potential fossil sites in the Cradle of Humankind World Heritage Site near Johannesburg. They had walked along a path made a century ago by miners who had partially excavated one area looking for lime. And that's where Matthew spotted a block of stone containing the remains of what has now been named Australopithecus sediba. It was a two-million-year-old specimen of an adolescent male, but with many features that are tantalisingly like our own. That block of stone was lying adjacent to a hole in the ground known as the Malapa Cave. And when Lee Berger investigated further, he uncovered a whole host of remains, including an adult female Sadiba skeleton and many more that have yet to be removed from the site. These individuals died when they fell into the cave, possibly because they had been out looking for water. But that meant that the level of preservation is unprecedented. And this week in the journal Science, Lee and his co-workers are publishing a further seven papers describing the findings and how they fill in some very important gaps in our understanding of human evolution. Lee took me to the cave site to show me this incredible place. We're walking up this little lime miners pathway. This little road we're on dates back at least 100 years, maybe a little bit more. It was done by ox sledges that they were dragging through here in order to access the cave sites. There are are actually uh, 86 caves in this little valley that we're sitting in. We can look to the north and see uh, off into the, the rest of Africa in this beautiful wilderness area. And then to the south of us here, a small valley that that is littered with these caves and, in some cases, fossil sites. And the most important one that we've discovered so far is the one that we're walking in. This little shelter of trees that, that we're just passing under now marks the kind of perimeter of what is now a collapsed cave system. Two million years ago, where we're standing right now, we would have been standing 25 to 30 meters below the surface. And over in front of us, 
if we'd been at just the right moment, sometime around 1.977 million years ago, we would have seen a quite horrific death assemblage. There would have been bodies littered all over the, the surface in front of us. Antelopes, saber-toothed cats, little mice and stuff did. A leaf litter would have been lying here, and it would have been writhing with insects, feeding on these dead bodies. And stuck amongst them, you would have seen figures and bodies of of early human ancestors, these Australopithecines. Just over in front of us at about one o'clock would have been the body of, of a young male. He would have been lying just on top of a female who had her legs kicked back and her arms broken lying underneath. There would have been an infant sitting just a few meters closer to us, lying right next to the body of a, a false saber-toothed cat. And that instant is the snapshot that's preserved in time here. Fast forward two million years later, and you have the image of flat ground with a small hole in it, bits of these ancient bedrock, the dolomite, coming collapsed stones, because it's all eroded down to expose just right that moment in time. And it's within that context that almost cemented in uh, effectively, because that's that's what this rock is that holds him, is this window into our past that accumulated probably over a few weeks or at most a few months of perhaps the richest early hominid site on the continent of Africa. So you came walking up this path in 2008, and we've arrived in this little tree-lined area, and there is a hole in the ground. Is this pretty much what you saw when you walked up it? Almost precisely what I saw. In fact... Almost exactly where we've stopped. I'd been down uh, in, in 2008, and I picked up a rock that was oh, sort of the size of a football or a rugby ball. And I turned it over, and, and there on the other side of it, almost, almost like this rock here, was, was an antelope humerus, the arm bone of an antelope sticking out of it. I was on a mapping exercise that day on the 1st of August 2008. I looked around. I saw there were other fossils. I took some notes. I took a photograph of this site. I took accurate GPS coordinates. I walked up the hill and found the remainder of caves in this extraordinary environment. It was only when we returned two weeks later with my then nine-year-old son, Matthew, that I stood on the edge of this pit. And that is, we walk a couple of steps forward. We're literally almost recreating that moment where I was standing right here with Job Kibbe, Son Matthew, my dog Tao, and looking down, I said, okay, guys, go find fossils. And as you can see around us, there are bits and pieces of this brown rock. That's where the fossils are. The ancient bone is sitting in those rocks, and the right thing to do is just start picking up rocks around you right now. That's not what Matthew and Tao did. They went racing off to the left here, off into that high grass, away from the cave site. It was the wrong place to look, but I think they're off to chase some of the antelopes or giraffe that you've seen on the way in here. And Matthew stopped by that lightning-struck tree. You can see this this bizarre little hole in the ground, and, and you can see where the tree has fallen over, where it was struck by lightning. He found a rock, and he said, Dad, I found a fossil. I walked over towards him. Five meters away uh, from him, I realized that his and my life were going to change forever because sticking out of the side of that was the bone I'd done my PhD on, a a hominid clavicle sticking out of the side of it. How that rock got there, we still don't know. Um, I don't think it was moved there by miners. There was nothing else in the vicinity of it. Maybe baboons had had tossed it, just like the troop of baboons we saw a few minutes ago. It it, had tossed it looking for insects uh, underneath it to that point. Whatever the reason, that that block held a, 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 a not insignificant portion of a skeleton that we would later find littered throughout this area and in place in in the wall of this cave just below us. I would then, two weeks later, find the adult female skeleton, although we never imagined there were two at the time. Uh, and, And then discovery after discovery after discovery. Now we have several hundred uh, specimens of, of these individuals and other skeletons uh, just from this tiny little hole. And you can see we've done nothing. We have hardly removed anything. Every time we start removing even a tiny bit of this overburden that the miners had dumped on top of here in their couple of blasts that they put in, we find another skeleton and have to stop. <laughs> it's a fantastic experience to have as an archaeologist or paleontologist. It's an embarrassment of riches, isn't it? Were the miners not at all aware of what they were walking on or walking over, or was there just no realization at that time how important this was one of the reasons that we suspect that this was probably late 19th century mining that is in the late 1890s or our turn of the 20th century 
is that they didn't notice this. If this mining had occurred in the in the second phase, which was after World War I, sort of 1919 to 1925, uh, by then you started to have uh, an interest in these things, particularly in the third phase, which moved into the 19, late 1920s and 1930s. By then, people like Raymond Dart were around and Robert Broom. Robert Broom walked this terrain. He was on this farm. He walked in the footsteps of where we've just been. If those miners had found this, I think they would have told him. What is remarkable is, is how this site was missed, and I can't answer that. I missed it for 17 years. Uh, but don't think I'm a complete idiot because everyone else had to. Should we take a look at the actual cave sites? What you're going to see is probably going to disappoint you enormously because it's so tiny. I think everyone who thinks of of these sites, they have images of these great East African rifts or or, or, or huge cave sites. But this little wall in front of us, which is, what, two and a half by, by three meters, that brown area from that area have come almost more early hominids than in any other spot in the history of the science. And this is basically a hole in the ground. It's, what, three metres deep. It's maybe five metres at maximum extent across in each dimension. And, as you say, incredibly rich fossil legacy. And, and in fact, only a little part of that. The entire fossil assemblage that we have to this date come from just one side of this wall. You'll be able to see an almost body-sized cavity where we removed her body and his part of his body from, although I'm going to actually let you put your fingers on another part of her body. She's still lying there, as is he. Just above them, in that sort of rippled, knotted area comes little infant hominids. They're lying there still, and they're still there right now. We have Is that part them. of what I can see sticking out just there? That's part of a, that's not part of them, that's part of an antelope because there are also other bodies mixed in. It, it's this stack of bodies that, that clearly fell and were moved into position, um, but as skeletons. Most of the animals here are articulated. Their, their, their pieces are in anatomical position and they're held together by remnants of their organic structure. Can you think how remarkable that is? How are you actually going to deal with this? Given the enormous amount of material here, are you going to slowly take pieces out? Are you going to take individual pieces out? Are you going to actually remove enormous amounts en bloc, you know, in the rock, and then process them in the lab? How does one tackle this? The answer is, I can't answer you yet. Uh, we are engaging the entire scientific community around uh, around how we're going to do this because there are there's information um, preserved in this rock that may actually be one of a kind. It may be utterly unique. We have to be responsible in preserving that. The intent right now is is to move with great care at a slow pace. We will attempt to remove large areas or, or moderate-sized areas of, of the rock in front of you and bring them into a controlled environment. So we will very carefully map out the surfaces. We'll very carefully identify uh, where the edges of any one deposit. We'll try to remove it in its entirety following along natural breaks and fractures. You can see where plants have dug into these termites have, have opened this up. And we will remove that rock, put it in a controlled environment, because there's never been a case, at least in our field of science, where you are almost guaranteed to make extraordinary discoveries in every piece of rock you touch here. But how extensive do you think this is then? I don't know that either. <laughs> uh, that's going to be one of the exciting uh, things about working this site. I can give you some clues. Nature, nature is, has given us a, a, a roadmap to this site in the form of this cluster of trees. If you, if you look off to the east here, you can see uh, a large white stinkwood tree that's, that's perhaps 20 meters from us. And, and behind us, this tree cluster goes another, say, 10 meters or so to the north of us, uh, to our left here, towards the lightning-struck tree. You can see a grove of trees, and then another 10 or 15 meters to the south of us, that's the perimeter of this cave. Where those trees are growing, the reason they're growing is they've got their feet in fossils. That's why they're there. They're, and so they're signaling us the potential of this site. And when you get beyond that, you're in that very, very ancient rock. So what is that? Uh, 30 by 30, maybe? Uh, we don't know how deep it is, but if the kind of density continues that we're, we're, we're achieving right now, uh, this, this really will be an extraordinary place. 
I think you need more paleontologists. <laughs> we we do. You know, one of the one of the lessons of of this this discovery is is a poignant one for science. I think that 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 so many people. Uh, particularly young people today think that we've explored this planet, that we've discovered all of the the great discoveries, that, that the age of exploration and discovery are gone, and that what we will do as individuals is stand on the shoulders of giants and add incrementally to our knowledge because the great age of discovery is ended. Well, what this site tells us is is a very different message than that because it sits right in the middle of perhaps the most explored area not only on the continent of Africa, but on the planet for these very objects, for sites just like this. It went unrecognized for nearly a hundred years. And yet sitting on the surface of the most explored area of the planet in the middle of it was an object so easy to see that a nine-year-old could pick it up that held not just another piece of these incredibly rare objects, but maybe the best ones ever found. And what does it tell us about other areas of science? It's got to be true if it's true here. So, Chris, I'm going to let you do something that, that, that very few people get to do. You've held the Tong child in your hand. You've touched these Sediba fossils. I'm going to let you touch a, a, an early hominid in situ, in place, and if you if you put your hand, you see these little white bones sticking out of this gray rock. If you if you put your hands on those, you're actually touching the other half of her body, still encased in here. There's there's part of her pelvis. Here's part of her tibia, her her shin bone going back in. The remainder of her body sits in here. That that is an extraordinary thing because we are so often forced to rip these things from the ground. And, and, and when we do that, it's a form of destructive behavior in the sense that their context is, is lost. Here you get to see a deliberate choice of us leaving this here for future generations. Science, because we have the other half of her skeleton, we will eventually remove this out, but we may put it, in, in fact, in a time capsule. So you're looking at a time capsule resource. You're seeing the future. I can describe for you What's in that? And, and with the technology we're using of X-ray technology, when this is in the lab, I'll be able to tell you every piece of her that's in here, every position that it occupies. That's extraordinary. We wouldn't have been able to do that if this discovery had been made 10 years ago. Because of its time, we're able to apply technology and decisions about future science that, that just weren't there for other scientists. So the new batch of research that's going to come out... What will you be reporting next? Well, the, the seven papers that are coming out in science um, continue the sort of extraordinary exploration of, of, of the body of, of Sediba. As you know, we've, we've covered kind of the, the pop critical areas of, of human evolution. We've, we've done the brain. We, we began to uh, address the features uh, of the face and taxonomy. We, we did the hand and its remarkable human hand. We did the pelvis because it's so related, how we give birth, how we walk. And we did the foot in those initial sort of descriptions of the morphology. Well, now we get to the nitty-gritty of this body. We link all those parts together. And so uh, the series of papers coming out, look at the dentition, two of them. Uh, one is a review of all that has happened to date. We look at the thorax, the chest, and its relationship to how Sediba was moving across land. Was it a runner? Was it a walker? Was it a climber? We look at its upper limbs, which link the hand uh, to the rest of the body. We look at the spine, something critical in bipedalism and, and, and particularly critical in, in humans as it's evolved and different from all apes. And then we look at the lower limbs, uh, finally, to to assess how was Sediba walking and, and, and what the short answer to that is in a way we never imagined before. When you put Sediba together, we see uh, a picture very different than we had predicted from the more fragmentary previous fossil record. We see uh, an animal moving in a bipedal way on two legs, but but not in a way we had predicted, in, in perhaps a walking with flatter feet and such. We see an animal with an upper body still adapted to some form of climbing whether that was trees or, or the cliffs you see are, uh, around you. And yet, all combined, um, perhaps one of the most mosaic uh, uh, 
systems of adaptation that, that we've seen in any mammal ever discovered. And that's exciting, not only because we'd love to see that as evolutionary biologists in any mammal, but see it in our own lineage is, is incredibly exciting. The dentition, uh, we, we begin to explore where does Sediba fit in this great story of human evolution. And uh, the answer is that Sediba doesn't fit in any clear way to the story we'd been telling from the existing fossil record. It may very well be that ideas that we had that, that all later species descended from species like Australopithecus afarensis lucy species uh, may not be correct. That is, it does appear that Sediba's dentition says it didn't come from at least that lineage of homo. And that may open the possibility of a ghost lineage, one we haven't found. And that's exciting for paleontologists. So your reasoning would be that there was Australopithecus afarensis, the Lucy specimens. There was in parallel Sediba or some other lineage that gave Sediba. And that could have been the thing that then gave ultimately us. Well, the first part of, of, of uh, your statement, the idea of the parallel lineage appears to be almost certainly true. Then that opens up the next phase of that story. And, and I think that's something that, that, that we kind of have to wait and see. Sediba shares a remarkable number of derived characters in really, really important areas with definitive members of our genus, the genus Homo. It's, it's hands, it's complex brain, the dental reduction, this unique pelvis, parts of the, the feet and, and, and limbs. On the other hand, it has a lot of very primitive characters. We just don't know. Are, are those remarkable coincidences? Are they what scientists call homoplasies? They look similar, but they were evolved for different purposes. Or are they just what they appear to be? That is, that they are effectively the progenitors of that morphology in our lineage. Both of those hypotheses are possible as well as perhaps others. Um, it's a wait and see because you've got to remember that the Sediba in some ways almost sits in glorious isolation. For 200, 300,000 years on either side, you could put every single other fossil discovered on this continent in a small suitcase and still have room to pack for a weekend away. <laughs> the, the interpretations then, it could be that Sediba sits there on its own. It evolved some of the traits we've got for the very same reason that we evolved them, but that Lucy, Australopithecus afarensis, ultimately still gave rise to us, and that Sediba was just an isolated example, or in some way it is linked to us and was our immediate ancestor and Lucy wasn't, or a combination of those two. Th that's right, and, and I mean, there will probably be a point uh, where we have to ask if it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, if it flies like a duck, is it a duck? Well, sometimes science isn't that easy. No, sure, but how has this, what must amount to a rather controversial interpretation, gone down? Because, you know, th this field is a small field in the sense that there are some very powerful people working in it, but not many of them. So how have they reacted to, to these finds and to your interpretation of them? Well, I'll, I'll tell you tomorrow, since these papers are literally <laughs> probably out as we speak. <laughs> I can't answer that. Uh, I, I could tell you that, that no field of science likes its sacred cows slaughtered, and, and, and paleoanthropology is no different, perhaps more so than it has been a field of fragments. Uh, it isn't going to be a field of fragments for very long, and these fossils form a part of that, that new generation of evidence. I still can't believe I'm standing on two million years of human evolution here. What else can I see as I stand in this hole? Just point them out to me, because they are pretty subtle. I mean, I wouldn't, if I stood in this hole, have realised there is the bottom half of, of a female from two million years well, ago. Let, let me try and, and make it less subtle for you then as we climb up. A lot of reason that's very subtle in this area is we've removed the, the various obvious pieces, but I can give you some sense of what's in front of you. His skeleton lay right here. His head So this was is the first one that came the out? The first one, uh, literally an arm length away from me. His body, the left-hand side of his body, sits within arm reach of us, in front of us at head height. Up here to the left of us, where I reach my hand up just above my head, I, is the foot of another skeleton. There's another child lying right in here, and you can see the little bits of yellowed bone that represent that articulated foot in position. And then we're going to do some climbing. We're going to climb up the face of this rock, uh, only a, a meter or so, 
and you're going to start seeing fossils that are not so uh, unobvious to you. As we as we cross onto this little platform, which is is no more than than say a meter above us, I can have you put your hand on the jaw of a large antelope skeleton that that extends here. And here you can clearly, I hope, see the teeth of that antelope in place, the shattered remains of its jaws. But what's even more exciting is right next to it. As I just push away a little bit of this dirt, you'll see the back of a mandible. You'll see a large tooth in place. That's the head of a saber-toothed cat. The skull is back in our lab. Its body is still in place, extending here. Oh, yes. Here's its upper limbs going out in this direction and lying right under where my hand is, which, if you imagine, almost this cat curled up on its side like a sleeping cat. Right underneath my hand is the skeleton of a little Sadiba baby, uh, about 18 months old. We struck its arm, which was lying, its body was lying right on top of this cat, and then we stopped because... The bones of an infant of that age are incredibly fragile and incredibly precious because we learn so much about the life history. And it's sitting right here underneath this dirt. People might think that we're in some giant grotto or something. We're literally almost at surface level again in this pit. And this is, what, only a foot not even, surface? Not so even, So it's yeah. extraordinary that it's there and hasn't been weathered right. away in two million years. What, what is extraordinary about it, too, is that at the rate that this, uh, this rock is eroding, we had a, a tiny window in time for this. If we had come 100 years ago, we would not have seen this because the miners wouldn't have opened this up. Literally, we would have walked across this almost in the, in the way we walked across this train. We might have seen some trees, but we wouldn't have uh, seen this as, as special at all. A hundred years from now, this would probably be gone. It's that narrow. When you think that we might have had a 200-year window in two million years. Is there no argument for erecting some kind of shelter over this to preserve it? Because, you know, Johannesburg is not known for its gentle, delicate weather, is it? <laughs> yeah. No, and in fact, uh, you might have noticed there are some blue bags and, and metal upright poles in a sort of semicircular uh, arrangement around the exterior of this hole. That's going to be a state-of-the-art lab funded by the South African government uh, put over this to protect it and allow us to deal in a paced manner with the extraordinary preservation here, the organic material the questions you've asked before, how are we going to get this stuff out? Some of it uh, remains to be answered how we're going to do that. What we do know is it needs protection, and that's going to be that. So uh, you're at a very privileged – very few people come here, as, as you might realize. This, this area is off limits for, for very obvious reasons in this beautiful, beautiful game reserve. But you are some of the last people to come here before this – place will be changed forever. It won't be this little natural hole in the ground. It's going to be an active scientific lab within months. Uh, and, and so it, it's, it's kind of neat to stand here in this pristine wilderness and, and see the future, but also get a taste for what the past was like. And many thanks to Professor Lee Berger, who very kindly took us to visit an incredible site before it will be changed forever. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Ben Bowsler and me, Hannah Critchlow. If you'd like to get in touch about Australopithecus or any of the other subjects that we've been covering on this week's show, then you can email studio at thenakedscientists.com, you can tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can find us on Facebook. And now it's just time for Question of the Week. So, Hannah, what do you have for us? Well, then, this week we go green. Anton from the Ukraine wrote in with this. Hi, I would like to ask a question about artificial photosynthesis. Does it exist? What kind of challenges do scientists have in this field and what potential benefit to humanity could it bring? So, could we mimic the power of plants to meet our energy demands? With the answer is Helen Woodfield from Cambridge University's Department of Plant Sciences. Yes, artificial photosynthesis does indeed exist. Photosynthesis is essentially the means by which energy from the sun is captured and used to split water molecules to generate fuel for the plant to use in growth. What scientists are trying to do is to use the principles from natural photosynthesis to harvest the sun's energy and convert it into fuel. The main challenge being met in this field is in the splitting of water. And to find out what splitting water could be used for, we turn to Dirk Mersch, a chemist at Cambridge University. 
that's a very simple. If we split water, we produce hydrogen, and hydrogen is a much cleaner fuel than the fuels we are currently using. And this fuel can be used, for example, using fuel cells to power cars. Sounds great. So what are scientists busy working on to make this happen then? Back to Dirk. The challenges we are facing at the moment is are coming not just from the light harvesting side where we have the same challenges as in solar cells, but also on the catalyst side because the catalyst has to be very uh, efficient and very robust. And the catalysts are essential uh, for our devices because they speed up the reaction, in general increase the efficiency of the device. Uh, at the moment, uh, platinum catalysts uh, fulfill this criteria. However, they're quite expensive. So what we are working on are cost-effective uh, catalysts such as uh, cobalt-based or nickel-based ones. Thanks, Helen and Dirk. So a promising technology for the future. Well, with that topic illuminated, we switch our brains over to a new question. Wilson wrote in with this. I have suffered from depression for many years. I have tried every medicine on the market, but nothing really happened. I heard about gene therapy for depression, and my question is, does it work, and when will the treatment be available for a patient like me? So, gene therapy for depression. What do you think about that one? Let us know by posting on our Naked Scientists Facebook page. You can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can email studio at thenakedscientists.com. Or you can join in the live debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientists.com slash forum. And that's all we have for this week. Many thanks to our guests, Professor Lee Berger and Professor Gabriel Kreiman. Thank you also to Hannah Critchlow for joining me. And the production this week was by Chris Smith and Kate Lamble. Next week, we'll be coming from the Royal Holloway Hospital as we report from the British Society for Gene and Stem Cell Therapy Conference. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust and the EPSRC. I'm Ben Valsler, and thanks for listening.